From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the changing world of ESG, how corporations can jumpstart industrial electrification, lobbying employees to lobby their companies on climate, and behind the scenes for achieving net zero at Netflix. It's lights, camera, climate action, this week on 350. It's April 2nd, 2021. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, hopping down the bunny trail, is Green Biz Editorial Director <laughs> Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. How are you on I'm this good, good on, Friday? That was a Easter reference, if you hadn't I caught the might Peter Cottontail it. lyric. Yeah. Um, and No I'm bonnet sure here, though. <laughs> I don't see you. I can only hear you, so I don't know if you're wearing your Easter bonnet as we speak, but... Um, how are you celebrating Easter this year? Well, <laughs> I will be celebrating it as I have celebrated it for the past few years with my in-laws, who uh, my my uh, mother-in-law is extremely devout Catholic, and uh, it is her favorite holiday. So we are going to be spending it with my, my mother-in-law. Well, that sounds great. I wish you a happy Easter in advance. And uh, you know what? Let's resurrect some of the stories from the Week in Review. Well, I'm going to start with a story that was based on a webcast that you did a couple of weeks ago, Joel, on ESG uh, scores and ratings and how uh, how they how what they really mean for transparency. I, I, I love this piece because... Um, you know, I, I unfortunately, and I, I'm I'm confessing things to you now, but I was not on your webcast. I'm sorry, <gasps> but um, you know, clearly this is a big issue for coverage for for GreenBiz right now, and I've been writing a lot about reporting and you know what what the ratings mean and the scores, and as we know, many of the sustainability linked bonds are attached to ESG scores. You know, ESG score. Uh, gets better, you get a better credit rating, blah, blah, blah. So I was fascinated to read this piece because it it really sort of took a counter view to like, it's all not all about the metrics, right? I don't think they were saying that the two folks in this article were saying that um, you shouldn't pay attention to them at all, but they were saying it's it's not the be all end all. Um, two great people, uh, Thomas Kamai, is that how you pronounce his name, Joel? Uh, Kamei. Kamei from Morgan Stanley. And uh, Tessie Petian from Amazon. Uh, I just found it to be a really informational piece that got me thinking differently about this. And I, I'm curious how the, the session developed, Joel, since you were there. Uh, give me your insight on on this topic. Well, you, you've kind of undersold uh, this, uh, this, this article <gasps> and the webcast that it came from because this was a extraordinarily entertaining and fun <laughs> webcast to do. Uh, Thomas Kamei, uh, a young, uh, you know, maybe still under 30 or 30-ish uh, analyst, 
uh, who is an, actually an architect and designer by training, ended up at Morgan Stanley. Hmm. And Tessie Petion, who is uh, the head of ESG engagement at Amazon, and who, after uh, spending 11 years on the on the research side at uh, HSBC and, and some mm-hmm. other uh, companies on the investor side, um, really represent uh, the, the next generation of, of hmm. ESG and sustainability professionals. Um, mm-hmm. First of all, just he's uh, Asian, she's black. Uh, they're both young, uh, incredible uh, energy and, and a very different take on things. And, and to your point, uh, you know, Thomas Kamei from Morgan Stanley said, uh, we don't even look at ESG scores. That's not what's relevant to them. And that may be a shock to all those mm-hmm. listeners out there who spend more than a small portion of their year putting out this information for their companies and for their shareholders and for the world at large. Um, but but that was, uh, you know, I think one of the interesting takeaways from this and Tessie, for her part, again, having been on the on the research side, on the investor side, uh, and now uh, on, on the corporate side at Amazon, uh, was saying, you know, this really needs to be a lot less about data and a lot more about storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I thought, you know, again, that's you don't always see that coming. That uh, although we've been talking about this, uh, I've been talking about this for decades now. That <laughs> that uh, that you know, how do you balance? the data and the stories. And so I love this conversation. If you have uh, you know, an hour or even part of an hour to spare and want to go into uh, the, the archives at greenbiz.com slash webcast, you'll find that, that particular one. It's called uh, ESG uh, 2021, the state of play. Um, it's just a really, really entertaining hour, I just have to say. Can I ask you one more question about this? Because, I, like I said, I found this to be fascinating as I was reading it. Um, do you think that the the push for, you know, mandated reporting will will be counter to that that narrative? Like, do you think that would help or hinder that 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 sort of thesis? You know, it's going to become a check the box kind of activity, and uh, a lot of companies will will you know will do the the bare minimum. And they'll make the disclosures, but they'll be kind of boilerplate disclosures, not really saying a lot about so about risk, for example, climate risk and how that might affect the company and its operations and its supply chains and all of that. And the the leaders, the ones we know, the ones who come to our conferences and, and read this and probably listening to this podcast um, are going to be the ones that go out, you know, out in various degrees all out in some cases to to really try and push the the envelope on on disclosure and transparency and also in presentation formats how do you present something that's um that's that's not too long but comprehensive um but you know it, it balancing the readability and, and comprehensiveness uh, one of the other factors and we've written about this a couple of years ago in our state of green business report um, and it'll be coming up as a session at our Greenfin conference in, in about 10, 12 days, is that, uh, and it's it's not in this story, so it's a little bit of a tangent, is that reports increasingly are being read by bots and AI and machine learning crawling the web and looking for these things. And what's interesting about that is that they can ferret out subtle changes in language uh, that the casual reader might not see, including the, the the analyst who's scouring these reports, supposedly, 
being human, they may not they may not notice that they went one year from from uh, could to will. We we could or we might or we should uh, make these kinds of disclosures or, or wind down these kinds of operations. Uh, to we will making an actual commitment and and the bots are going to start to ferret some of that out and I think that's going to could change the game in terms of how this stuff is not just reported but actually analyzed so that's maybe more than the answer you were looking for but I think this is uh, you know this dry for a lot of people probably most people arena of corporate reporting on environmental social and governance metrics is actually going to be kind of exciting in 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 uh, in a certain geeky kind of way in terms of really understanding what companies are doing and where they're going and what what their risks are and how they're dealing with them. Yeah, and I I love geeking out, so I look forward to geeking out more. What do you want to talk about next? Well, uh, here's is this is sufficiently geeky for you? How corporations can jumpstart industrial <laughs> electrification in yes. the United States? Yes, very geeky. <laughs> uh, and this comes from a, a, a trio of writers mm-hmm. from uh, AC Tripoli, the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy, and uh, a uh, organization called Global Efficiency Intelligence, and a third one called Energy Innovation. Talking about uh, you know what will it take to electrify everything from appliances to automobiles to uh, you know industrial processes of all kinds um, you know how do we create the combustion that drives uh, compressors and motors and and uh, so many other you know uh, turbines uh, so many of the workhorses that are in frankly every factory. Um, and this is a big challenge and uh, electrification across uh, a number of sectors. And, and this report that is the heart of this, uh, there's a few different reports that are woven in here, but one of them uh, talks that, about increasing electrification across 13 industrial sectors from food processing to paper products and how that could actually reduce emissions uh, by uh, over 100 million metric tons a year eventually. And... Um, so this is going to be a big theme. We're just doing an event on this, Verge Electrify, coming up in um, May, I believe. Uh, and uh, you know how we move from fossil fuels, and that, including natural gas, uh, to electrification off of a clean energy grid is going to be one of the great uh, in- and interesting infrastructure challenges we'll be facing. We'll see how that comes to play in the uh, the new Biden infrastructure play. We're still finding out what that's about and where mm-hmm. that sausage will end up mm-hmm. uh, uh, eventually. But this is uh, this is just I think the the beginning, the early stages of a great transition in how we power our world. Right. You know, and I I appreciated this piece because it really speaks to the next level of what companies need to do with decarbonizing their operations we've, we've had so much focus on on agreements that help put more grid uh, uh clean energy on the grid and this really goes into those really the nut the, the nuts and bolts as you were saying before of the manufacturing sector and just and it, it all starts with with simple things right like one of the the things that they talk about here is not trying to get too intimidated by the 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 biggest challenges, which for which there are, are not necessarily technologies today, but, but but by prioritizing things like lower temperature applications um, for electrification, and that you know those candidates, the food, beverage, tobacco, transport, equipment, 
pulp and paper. I mean, just there was one figure in here that kind of was was intriguing. If you lose use electrified drying for recycled paper processes, you could avoid 16 million metric tons of carbon dioxide by 2050. So there's like all of these great little ways, kind of like the energy efficiency movement, right? So like it starts by optimizing and and taking bite-sized chunks out of out of uh, what you need to do. I know we need to do a lot more quickly, but um, that shouldn't prevent people from getting started. And this this offers a few few specific uh, action items. Yeah. Well, speaking of action, let's move over to a piece that that you did uh, on mm-hmm. Netflix and their new uh, push for net zero. So uh, hey, I'm just going to chill while you talk Netflix. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. So Netflix, you know, we hadn't heard much from them. Um, and uh, partly it was in part because they actually didn't have anyone focused on it internally until they hired uh, Emma Stewart, who uh, some of our readers may know from her work at Autodesk. Um, she also was was involved uh, in helping develop uh, the science-based uh, targets initiative. So she was involved in that. So she's very experienced in science-based targets um, and in you know, setting goals and setting goals like early. Um, and so she's finally come out her team. She's been actually there for about uh, October. I don't know the math, what, eight months, six months. I don't know what the math is. Don't make me, don't make me math. Uh, don't grade me on my math skills. Um, but she hasn't been there that long. And they've come out with their first, um, you know, proclamation. And of course, yes, it's a net zero. So you know, that in itself, you know, yes, they have to say something like that. But I think what intrigued me the most um, were two things. One is um, I didn't really think about, you know, Netflix as a a force in the, the media production industry. So film and TV programming. And I, I, I don't know what I was thinking, but I, you know, I always think of them as this big tech company, right? But they have this enormous footprint in production, in uh, filming, filming, all of these great things that people are binge watching right now. Um, so they have a very specific mandate there uh, to help that industry um, focus on decarbonization. That could be, you know, things like uh, simply simple things like hiring a local crew. Well, who knew, right? And I think some of these are outlined in, in some of the industry standard uh, suggestions for this. I know there's some 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 associations that have created things like that. But, uh, you know, the other thing that I was particularly intrigued by beyond that, you know, some some really good specific things was the process she's using, her, her team is using to vet the carbon offsets, right, that they are going to be buying. Because we know everyone has to buy carbon offsets right now, um, or at least everyone is buying carbon offsets right now. And how do you ensure that they're quality? So she really offered a very specific peek into how they're how they're doing this um and i i i don't know if you've joel if you've ever actually talked to folks about how how they're they're going about this in the past i'm I'm curious to hear about that in a moment but you know she shared the exact steps it's like the the whole rfp process they they have 75 project developers and and other organizations that they've targeted as as knowing um that they want to look at they are they have all sorts of requirements about how those uh, credits are verified and if they're they're on a, tr- a registry they're not double counted they actually interview everyone that's that's potentially involved 
they're looking for the the technologies that are being used to uh, to verify and validate these things more closely. So there's a lot of uh, satellite image services and intel artificial intelligence that are that are coming up uh, to help keep track of these in, in a more um, prescriptive way. And then they have a, a whole outside um, advisory group that's basically, you know, they're they're handing this over to and they're taking um, they're taking advice from this this group. And it includes uh, people like Christiana Figueres, uh, climatologist Catherine Hayhoe, um, you know, and, and they have others who are focused on indigenous rights and environmental justice issues. So yeah, they haven't really said that much. Um, they're they're finally doing so, and and I think that this was worth uh, worth highlighting. Yeah, and I think that the important part here, because I mean, let's face it, Netflix isn't a big emitter. A million or so tons a year sounds like a lot. It's not all that much compared yeah. to many, many other companies. And and I I would have thought that most of their impact would have been in their data centers. It's not. Like it's only five percent. Five yeah. percent, I know, yeah. and and half of it is comes from the physical production of their of their series and films, um, and 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 a chunk from their corporate offices. And when the corporate office is is uh, you know forty five percent, that means that the overall pie isn't exactly. all that big. Yeah. So that that's not the significant part. I think this process, as you say, um, and that that as you write, we're inspired by the Oxford principles for net zero aligned carbon offsetting. And and how they went through this process of of getting competitive requests for proposals and requiring that all the credits be registered in a certain way, and then actually having live interviews with the project developers and their partners and things like that, is a is a great roadmap for other companies to follow. Because this, as we've talked about this endlessly on this podcast, they offset. Uh, process these days is still the wild west it's still fraught with with all kinds of things and even well-intentioned companies that aren't deliberately trying to mislead are, are still kind of greenwashing in certain kinds of ways so uh this is uh i think great uh advice and uh look more forward to digging into some of the links on this story and it's just something to ponder in the back of your mind next time you're watching my octopus teacher my octopus teacher you know, and actually, actually, that is the final point I'd like to make is they have, they say that 160 million Netflix households, and I put that in quotes because I don't know, is that people? Is that like five people? I don't know. But they tuned into at least one film or program related to programming around sustainability, planetary sustainability. And that's another area where she hopes to make a difference is, you know, by by helping bring this to, you know, helping get people think about this in a different way. So, oh, and that, the other thing is they're, they're prioritizing projects that are like related to those productions. So that's another lens they're using. Like there's a, a Kenyan project that they just uh, announced this week that's going to be, that's near national parks that are featured in an upcoming series. So anyway, I'm, I can blab on and I, I probably should stop. Well, if Netflix can uh, change the equation on uh, on climate change, uh, might bring a whole new meaning to Netflix and chill. Mm-hmm. 
renewable aggregation deals in which groups of companies come together to buy the power being generated by wind or solar farms or other clean generating resources are still relatively rare. But their appeal is growing among companies with smaller energy appetites than the likes of power-hungry companies like AT&T or General Motors, and with organizations that have highly distributed operational footprints. Just last month, Merck KGAA's Life Sciences Division, Millipore Sigma, teamed up with Akamai, Synopsys, and Uber to collectively buy 111 megawatts of wind-generated electricity from an Enel project in Texas. It's one of the biggest aggregation arrangements to date. Joining GreenBiz 350 to chat about the project are Greg Rizzo, Director of Origination Commercial Office at Enel Green Power, and Jeffrey Whitford, Head of Sustainability, Social Business Innovation, and Life Science Branding at Millipore Sigma. Hello, gentlemen. Hi, Heather. Thank you. Hi, Heather. Greg, let's start with a level set. How did this deal come together? And do you expect arrangements of this nature to become more common? Definitely. So a lot of the credit goes to the, the four buyers of this aggregation. As you mentioned in your intro, you know, it, it's clear that there's a lot of companies out there that are making these strong sustainability commitments and 100% renewable energy commitments and setting these aggressive targets. But not every company has, you know, um, large energy consumption or you know, demanding a large energy load to offset. So uh, what was important here is that we had four companies, you know, across a a number of industries that all had, you know, like ambitious targets of getting 100% renewable or achieving strong sustainability goals. And, you know, they really came together through their network under the Sustainability Roundtable Inc. um, outfit. And they really you know, when they came to market, they all had, you know, similar interests. They wanted VPPAs. They really had done their homework. They knew what they were after and and how much energy they were after. And then we worked with the four companies, you know, we being Enel, to find the project that had enough capacity to meet the 111 megawatts, which when you aggregate it up, that's a pretty strong, pretty strong demand um, for a large asset. And we were able to you know, place them on the Azure Sky Wind project, which is currently under development, soon to be starting construction. So really all the credit goes to them. Um, you know, they work together to, to come to market as one in order to bite off a big chunk of a huge project. Yeah. Are you, are we seeing arrangements of this nature becoming more common? I know there's still pretty, I can probably name just a couple off the top of my head, but are, are we going to see more of these? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a number of companies out there that are making these strong commitments, you can see it in the RE100 or other, um, you know, UN SDG targets, publicly committed goals. But a lot of the, I, I want to say there's, um, there's sort of a delay in these companies coming to market, because when you don't have a large energy consumption, it just, you know, it, it, it takes a lot. And some of these companies have smaller sustainability teams. And really, it's a, um, you know, signing a VPPA takes time. And I think the aggregation model is great because, you know, smaller organizations or energy, um, you know, energy teams at organizations can uh, work together to solve problems and also collaborate together in order to, um, you know, find a solution that meets their needs rather than having to go to market on their own, which can be somewhat intimidating. Um, So 
I definitely think the aggregation model is great for those companies. And I think we'll see a lot more of it in the future. Mm -hmm. Now, Jeffrey, Millipore Sigma is buying the biggest chunk as part of this deal. I think it's 68 megawatts, which comes with, uh, that's enough renewable energy certificates to cover your U.S. operations. Um, What was attractive about this deal and how did your team make the business case internally? Yeah. So Heather, I I guess one quick question is, do you mind if I turn the tables on you really quick and ask you a question? (laughs) Go right ahead. Perfect. So uh, tell me what you think that Laramie, Wyoming, Kankakee, Illinois, Belfont, Pennsylvania, the Woodlands, Texas, and Carlsbad, California have in common. I'll bet they're all where your company is. Exactly. All of these places are not remotely <laughs> close. And that is just a small mm-hmm. handful of the number of sites wow. we have. So mm-hmm. it is really highlighting this need for having a larger solution that can address a larger problem because to get all of those individual networks in a place where there's renewable energy from the grid, uh, from the provider in that local municipality is going to take a lot of time. And so the ability to have a solution that brought together the uh, buying power to take care of what was 125,000 metric tons of CO2 emissions uh, that we'll be able to match using this renewable uh, energy deal is just a really uh, big step forward for us in terms of our commitment to working our way towards our net zero commitment. And I think the business case internally something totally different than anything we've ever done. We've done, you know, those small kind of, I would say, vanity renewable energy projects, which are nice. They help, you know, like show that commitment to the employee base. But this makes a transformational commitment for us and puts a stake in the ground to help communicate not only to our employee base, but also to our customers, the value that we put in this. And so the internal business case actually became a lot simpler when we looked at the economics of the deal. And from a business perspective, what does this add in terms of how we start moving our way to demonstrating um, meaningful uh, steps towards this commitment? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, to go back to some of the things that Greg was saying at the beginning, you described the sort of backstory a little bit. I'm just curious, how long did it take for this arrangement to come together? And Jeffrey, your, your thoughts would be appreciated too. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like, how long did it take to pull this off? Yeah, so I think, again, a lot of the credit goes to the buyers, um, Millipore, Uber, Akamai, and Synopsis. They had definitely done their homework prior to coming to market. So I don't want to speak for Jeff, and I'll let Jeff speak to how, how much work was done up front on really understanding the structure and, you know, really knowing what they want. But I think for the Enel, you know, when Enel got involved after the project was selected as, you know, the, the company and uh, project that the buyers wanted to work with, it really was sort of a streamlined process. I think it just took, you know, a few months to negotiate the deal, but really that's because the buyers really knew what they wanted. They had done their homework up front. They definitely had executive buy-in across the the four companies. So, it was a it was a streamlined process, and also um, want to give credit to you know the outside counsels that all the parties worked with, and also um, SRI Sustainability Roundtable. They had definitely um, you know p- put a good put a good group of buyers together that knew what they wanted. So the process did move quickly. Um, you know one of our you know one of our quicker negotiations, I would say. Jeffrey, how much back work before that um, was was in place? 
So we are a company that is 352 years old. So Mm -hmm. this is not something that, you know, I would say agility is not necessarily um, (laughs) our strongest suit, Uh but this interestingly was one of the quickest things that I have actually seen happen Hmm. uh, within our organization. And what makes it even more interesting, Heather, is the fact that this was such a different concept for our organization to digest because I think when it was first presented to uh, to our internal teams, uh, it was really like, who? what's this Oz behind the curtain that you're talking about? Because getting people's brains wrapped around a VPPA um, took a little bit of work. But from, from being able to say, we are going to move forward this, it was honestly the span of probably four to five months internally, which for us is extremely quick to see this deal move and actually... Uh, initially, our commitment was 50 megawatts, but then an opportunity came up for us to be able to increase that number. So I think it shows the commitment internally of, of seeing something and saying, this is a really good solution for us to be able to move forward. And so taking an even additional extra step um, and being able to work back through all of the things, and granted, the channels were complete, but to get the okay to increase the additional 18 megawatts um, was actually a quick a quick turn as well. So for us, it was a, a very quick turn, what I would say in corporate land, that's something I have not seen. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm just curious, Greg, at the beginning, you, I think, uh, actually, I don't know if you mentioned the whole capacity, but I think it's 350 uh, at the, the farm that, that were these, yeah. So is there room for other buyers? So, um, so, so we did an, we did announce a, a large, you know, 100 megawatt PPA around the same time, um, a little smaller than the total aggregation uh, w- with Kellogg's, which does, you know, ah. which does get get the project get get the project pretty well committed, and and we have another another buyer uh, that we're in negotiations with ah. now that, that that's wrapping up. But I, I would say beyond um, this one, it's important that Anel does have a very diverse. Uh, large pipeline of projects in Texas and other markets in the United States. And we are working to um, replicate this model on other projects. And we definitely open the door for anybody with interest to come to us and definitely, um, you know, working to put together some more of these aggregations to uh, make renewables available for all uh, buyers, regardless of size or industry. Got it. So some wrap-up questions here. Jeffrey, was there anything you wish your team had done differently along the way? You know, I think to your point, Heather, about the commonality of these these deals, I wish that this had been an option sooner because it helps uh, certainly send a signal to the marketplace that for smaller organizations who may not have mammoth demand, there are pathways forward for us to be able to take these kind of steps forward that seemed out of reach before. You know, I would see stories in GreenBiz about, you know, commitments made from Apple and these other organizations, which were just outsized. I was just like, well, that's a that's a, a field that I can't get to right now. So I think it, it is one of those things of you realize the opportunity that things like this create when looking at new ways to slice a problem and increase access because the increase of access changes the the dynamics for so many people. There are a lot of these, you know, smaller, like they're, they're big companies, but they're still smaller. And so giving people these types of opportunities, how can we get more of them and increase access to them? That's the one thing I would have have loved to have sooner, but so thankful that we were able to take this opportunity and move us, move us forward. 
I have one last question for the two of you. What final advice would you give to a corporate energy buyer who is considering a power purchase agreement of this nature? Greg, let's start with you. Cool. So, yeah, I would just say, you know, encourage anyone that has interest or, you know, is, is hearing about VPPAs to rely on subject matter experts. And there's a whole lot of organizations out there with educational documents. Because um, really, I think when you dive into the details of a VPPA, it might sound intimidating up front, but it's really a streamlined process. And the industry has adapted the virtual power purchase agreement as a structure to uh, you know, address scale, as, as Jeffrey was mentioning in the beginning. Um, and, and also, if you have locations spread across the country, the VPPA is the perfect model. So there are solutions, regardless of size or industry or location. So I would just encourage anybody to, you know, w- with, with interest to reach out. And, you know, Anel is one of many suppliers that are offering this structure. So don't, don't hesitate. But then also, you know, if you do want to set up an aggregation, there are a number of companies out there that I've talked to that are in a similar position where they might not be able to bite off a large chunk of a big project. But when you start to compile these companies together, you end up with an anchor anchor opportunity here. So definitely, you know, encourage folks to reach out and Enel as one would be happy to work with buyers of, of all size and happy to spread some education out there as well. And Jeffrey. Yeah, I think from my perspective, it is be a bit of a cynic, ask a lot of questions, um, but also realize that the things that you didn't know were possible are possible. You know, I think we we fight this battle when working within sustainability of trying to come out with proof points, but also trying to be realistic about how we're going to get there. And to be honest, this was not a reality in my world. Um, my team did an amazing job and it was so great to have people who thought differently and you know, work to convince a whole lot of people through multiple levels of our organization with a very clear and concise uh, story about how this is beneficial for us as a company and the benefit that it has in helping us achieve the goals. And I think that is really at the end of the day, what it's all about. Well, thank you both for coming on Green Biz 350 to share your insight. Thanks, Heather. It was good to uh, be able to join you today. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. You just heard from Greg Rizzo with Anel Green Power and Jeffrey Whitford with Millipore Sigma. This week, the nonprofit group Climate Voice, which helps employees motivate their companies to step up their climate advocacy, launched the One in Five campaign targeting the lobbying efforts at five big technology companies. The idea is to encourage employees at those companies to press their employers to devote one in five lobbying dollars to climate during 2021. And here to tell us more is our old friend, Bill Weil, the executive director of Climate Voice. Hey, Bill. Joel, good to see you. So. You just launched this program. What's actually going to happen first? How are you going to uh, begin this process of getting employees to press their employers to step up on climate advocacy? A big part of this is education. Most employees don't think about uh, lobbying as something their company should be doing on climate. Um, And so we are running a digital campaign, including paid ads, to educate employees about 
the extreme lobbying being done by the fossil fuel industry, mostly on the wrong side of the issue, and the very limited lobbying being done by most other companies, including the big tech companies. So what are they lobbying for? Do you have a, uh, an agenda of specific bills or issues? What, what is this about? Um, I think a lot of people at companies would like a list, like tell us the five bills we should, or five policies, or the two or the one that we should lobby for. Um, I think as with most public policy issues, it's not that simple. Um, uh, we have a new administration in Washington. The Democrats now have very thin control of the, the Senate, but there is a window of opportunity there. We can't tell you or tell your listeners exactly what a bill might look like. What we do need is for those who care about climate to get in there and lobby for really bold, equitable climate policy that will drive the, the rapid decarbonization we need. And I think you know what exactly what that bill or bills might look like is going to shift over the coming months as sausage gets made in Washington. Um, so we want companies to step up and make climate one of their top lobbying priorities and treat it like they would any other major issue that they lobby on all the time. You know, with the tech companies, it's privacy and immigration and trade and taxes, these days probably antitrust, um, where they work to influence government. And it's not, not that there's one or two or three policies there or specific bills. There's a range of things that come up and they're paying attention and they're working to influence the outcome. We need them to do the same on climate. Why tech companies? Why are you starting with them? A bunch of reasons. One has to do with this moment in time. You know, you, you might recall that we spent the last year, you know, locked in our closets, not leaving the house mostly and so on, right? A lot of companies have really suffered in the last year. Big tech companies have done really, really well. So they are in a position where they have the resources uh, to devote to lobbying. They are hiring like mad. And our, our theory of change as an organization is to work with employees and with the, the talent pool, the students that companies hire to influence the companies. And since these companies are hiring like crazy, even in the face of COVID, um, uh, we think they're a good, a, a, a good set of companies to go after. And they are enormous. They are hugely profitable. Their market cap is... 25 plus percent of the, the S&P 500. Um, they have a lot of influence and it makes a difference when, when they choose to use it on issues where they choose to use it. We need them to choose to use it on climate. So you've worked in sustainability roles at both Google and Facebook. Google's energies are and Facebook's director of sustainability. I'm guessing that you've probably gamed this out a little bit about what happens inside those companies as a result of this campaign. Can you tell us a little bit about what you expect to see happen or what you'd like to see happen? Um, with our campaign, we, you know, the, the very concrete action we want employees to take is sign a petition. So we're looking to gather thousands of signatures from employees and students at the major universities these companies hire from 
to call on the companies to devote one in five of their lobbying dollars and make climate a real lobbying priority. But beyond that, we want employees to then go to executives and tell them, you know, this is my future we're talking about. We want you, I as an employee, want my employer to have my back. And we believe that when a modest number of employees start to make noise about that internally, at least at some of the companies, maybe not all, that they will start to shift. They are already shifting. I mean, if you go back five years, most of these companies did very little lobbying um, or, or, you know, whether it was legislative or regulatory, they did very little unless it directly mattered to their operations. In the last year or two, we started to see a shift. They're opening it up a bit more. We want to accelerate that, especially right now, because we've got a window right now in Washington where I think there's an opportunity for major climate legislation in D.C. Uh, you know, in the next year and a half. It will close around, you know, during the 2022 election cycle, it might reopen again, depending on how that election goes. So we need to do a lot in the next 12 to 15 months. And so now really is a time to get these companies to move. And not, I mean, this campaign is focused on the tech companies. We want to see major influential companies across the board stepping up. According to the uh, press materials you distributed with the launch on Wednesday, uh, you said you're going to back this up with a digital ad campaign. W what's that about? Um, uh, well, we can't go uh, organize on corporate campuses right now because nobody's there or almost no one. Um, so this isn't at the moment an all digital campaign. We'll be running ads. We'll be using social media. Um, so we hope that we'll get a lot of organic spread of content, but we are going to be doing paid ads. There's a, a video ad and a, a comic book style created by a firm that we've been working with. Um, I'll probably be a little embarrassed when people look at it, but that's okay. I, you know, part of my job is to be embarrassed by things. Um, and, uh, you know, we're hoping that that uh, you know the the media companies will pay attention. This will be an interesting story. So that we'll get both earned media and organic lift from people spreading the word, and then paid ads. Now I really have to see this comic book. Is it going to be Bill Weil and Spandex or neoprene? What's superhero? Not quite, What's... but <laughs> but uh, you know, by, by the time this airs, you you'll be able to to see it. Okay, good. So I have to ask you the, the final question and the obvious one is, how do you measure success? How are you going to know whether this actually is working? Um, so, you know, sort of simple measure number one is how many people sign the petition. Number two is how many people actually speak up inside their companies. And then number three is, do the companies start to listen? And do we see these companies on Capitol Hill, in Sacramento and other state capitals, really showing up and lobbying and lobbying like they really mean it. I mean, it's one thing to sign a letter of support um, or to even send your lobbyists to Capitol Hill and say, we care about this and here's what we think. And that, that does matter. Um, it's another thing to go and say, you know, to an elected representative, we really care about this and how you vote on this will affect 
our future campaign contributions, who we invite to the grand opening of our next big facility, where we choose to grow, where we're going to invest our growth. All that will depend on this because it, it is as important to us as taxes and immigration and the other things that that really affect the core of our business. That that's that's kind of the ultimate measure of success. And the ultimate measure of success is the climate itself. So right. Uh, right. we'll look forward to seeing what, what you do with this. Bill Weil is the executive director at Climate Voice. You can learn more about the one in five campaign at climatevoice.org. Thanks, Bill. My pleasure, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll learn more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish seven of them now. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters, and you'll learn more about them. We love to hear from you, your comments, questions, and tips. Our email address is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.